Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. And today, before we get the episode started, there's a few things that we want to let you, our audience, know about Up Top uh, that are coming up in the month of October, which is one of our favorite months here. Uh, first of all, we are going to start doing listener mail episodes over Periscope. We're going to attempt this. If you've ever used the Periscope app before, it's connected to Twitter. Uh, we've been getting so much listener mail lately that we don't really feel like we could do it justice in one podcast episode. So we figured we'd give this Periscope thing a try. And we're going to try it out on Friday, October 23rd. The second thing that we want to let you know about is the return of Monster Science. Now, if you're a listener of the podcast, but you've never seen any of the videos before, uh, I have to recommend that you check these out. I wasn't involved in the the original ones, and it's one of my favorite things that we've ever produced here at How Stuff Works. Robert, you want to talk a little bit more about it? Yeah, we have uh, four new episodes uh, coming at you. Uh, in each one, uh, Dr. Anton Jessup uh, discusses uh, the fictional world of monsters as well as the real world, the real natural world of biology, and finds uh, comparisons to make between the two. So it's, it's always a fun uh, video. It's great. Yeah, and it has so much value to like the effects that are in it that our producer Tyler throws in and also like some really cool background props and items that you guys get to work with. So if you're into uh, horror, if you're excited about Halloween in October and you love science like we do, you should totally check out Monster Science. It's already, the first two seasons are already on YouTube, and if you follow us on Facebook, we're going to be posting at least one or two episodes a week directly there for the next couple of weeks leading up to Halloween in the new season. Yeah, so you can sort of follow the, the very loose narrative that, uh, that goes through all of these. Yeah, and, and, and real quick before we get started, just, you know, if you want to find out any of this stuff and you're a fan of the show and you haven't you haven't uh, had the opportunity to learn about these yet, definitely you know, follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter and Tumblr. All those platforms were Blow the Mind. There's also the homepage, StuffToBlowYourMind.com, which is full of blog posts that Robert and I and Joe work on and uh, videos, o- older videos that Robert and Julie used to do, and including all the monster science stuff. So definitely just give it a shot. And speaking of monsters, uh, today we are talking about uh, a topic that has definite ties into the mythological world of monsters, but also uh, uh, ties in very nicely to themes of Biological and chemical weapons yeah. into uh, in, into themes of just uh, natural biology and uh, of course natural medicine. Yeah, this is a topic that uh, you know if you had asked me about a week ago before I'd done the research, I would have just had some vague sort of universal pictures uh, ideas about what this means. So of course we're talking about wolfsbane. Yes, and I honestly, I wasn't completely sure it was real until yeah. very recently. Me either. You see, it, you hear it mentioned, it sounds a little bit too cute, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, how do you fight off a werewolf or potentially make a werewolf? It gets convoluted. Yeah. Um, well, you find this uh, this this plant, this little flower that's occurring, and it's called wolfsbane, ironically enough, and right. that can be used against the creature. Yeah, and it turns out this is a real thing, uh, very real, in, uh, very prominent in northern Europe, and uh, has a real deep history with a lot of uh, interesting sort of connections to how it's used and the variations in which people have used it to heal and to hurt one another. Uh, and the the werewolf thing is fascinating, but I, I, I also think that it's just it, it's got like a very 
odd kind of horticultural background too. Yes. Something that I'd never heard of, maybe because I've you know I've, I'm not like one foot into the botany world the way I'm one foot into the horror world. Yeah, like it, it definitely has deep roots, if you will, in <laughs> in the botany world, and also also in the world of uh, traditional medicines, especially traditional Chinese medicine. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, what are we actually talking about here? Wolfsbane is what exactly? Well, we're talking about uh, perennial herbs of the buttercup family, Ranun Kulese. Okay. And that's divided into two genera, Econitum and Erathus. Yeah, and so uh, Latin is going to be a major uh, thing that pops up here in terms of like the uh, the naming conventions surrounding these plants. And I think there's something like 60, 60 different subspecies of these. So uh, forgive us if our Latin isn't up to par and <laughs> we're not pronouncing these exactly right. But the 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 main thing to know is that this is uh, largely referred to as a conatum, and we'll also be talking about a conite, mm-hmm. which is this deadly poisonous alkaloid that is emitted from the plant primarily from its roots. Yeah, it, I mean, it's present all through the, the plant, but in its uh, roots and root tubers, that's where you find mm. the highest concentrations. Right. Uh, but it's, it's also in the, in the, in the leaves, it's in the, the flowers, it's in the, it's in high levels in the pollen. Yeah, it's um, crazy it's, dangerous. Yeah. And this is one of the thing, one of the reasons why after doing this research, I was like, why don't we all know about this? Because this seems like this incredibly dangerous thing that we just refer about casually in werewolf movies. <laughs> yeah, and we'll, we'll discuss some of the dangers ahead, but you, you find it throughout the Northern Hemisphere. Um, yeah. In in, uh, in America, you find it throughout Eurasia, and uh, accidents do occur. And it's mostly native to mountains. It's known as a rock flower in some uh, some parts of the world because it grows up out of uh, spaces in between rocks. But there's primarily two sort of informal categories. There's monk's hood and there's wolfsbane. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's called monk's hood because of, of its shape. So it has this um, shape to it. Uh, they call it the sepals. I guess those are like the upper petals mm-hmm. um, that kind of curve over and look like the hood over like a, I guess, like a capuchin monk or something like that. Um, and there's different colors, right? So the monk's hoods usually are like dark blues or purples. Sometimes you'll find them uh, in white variations, whereas like wolfsbane is usually yellow. Sometimes it's lavender or pink. And uh, those are commonly grown in the Alps of Switzerland, actually, which, again, I didn't I had no idea. Yeah, the hills are alive. And uh, and it's, it's important to to, uh, to to drive home to here that the reason that this uh, this thing is just so filled with uh, with toxic uh, alkaloids mm-hmm. is because it's it's in essence a chemical protect protection against herbivores. Yeah. I mean, uh, some of the not just some of the ways that this has been used against humans, but also animals, I thought was. Uh, pretty mortifying, but mm-hmm. I guess, you know, maybe I'm coming at it from a modern day standpoint where I wouldn't purposely poison horses, for instance. But yeah. we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, so, okay. There's a, there's an interesting etymology behind this particular flower. So the, the name is thought to be derived from the Greek word, uh, I think it's aconiton. Uh, which means without struggle. But there's also an idea that it also comes from the Greek word akon, uh, which is a word for dart or javelin. And we'll talk about that later, but it primarily has to do with the substance being coated on those weapons. Yeah, during, used, during as war. A, used as essentially a chemical weapon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also thought to come from the word akane, which is a, a word connected to rocky grounds. Like I just said, like it grows up in mountainous regions. And actually, Pliny the Elder talked about it in some of his writings. And he said, 
that it might be connected to the port of Akane, which was apparently a place known for evil repute. Um, and that's, you know, again, connected to it because of the whole poison in the Akonite thing. So uh, the last one, apparently Akon, all those kinds of iterations within Greek uh, all have kind of deadly meanings. So uh, whetstone is apparently uh, pr- pronounced Akon uh, in Greek. And uh, that so if you don't know, that's the like the thing that you use to sharpen a sword, basically. Mm-hmm. And they think that that might also be an origin for it because it like a whetstone. It makes a, a blade even deadlier. So how do people end up uh, finding themselves poisoned by Wolfsbane? Uh, there are basically two ways, and it depends on where you are in the world. If you uh, if you reside uh, in the east, particularly if you're, if you're in China, uh, then there's a, a very good chance that you might encounter it uh, through traditional medicine. And if the proportions are long, if it are wrong, if it hasn't been prepared properly, yeah. or you take too much of it uh, in its prepared form, then you can become poisoned by the aconite yeah and it's nasty stuff and and then you know there's just the casual like walking by it or Mm -hmm. accidentally putting it to your lips too which you know surprisingly happens more often than you'd think in fact uh last year in 2014 there was a 33 year old gardener named nathan greenaway and he worked he worked at this uh place called millcourt house which was owned by like a, a retired venture capitalist named christopher ogilvy thompson uh and apparently they had wolfsbane go- growing in their giant garden, and uh, Nathan didn't know this. He brushed up against it, and it killed him within a day. Um, and some people speculate, you know, it's it's worse if you have, like, open wounds on your hands. Apparently this guy wasn't wearing gloves at the time. But uh, it's pretty dangerous. In fact, some people over the years have even mistaken it for horseradish and put their roots oh. in their mouth and died from it. Uh, so it leads to bad results. Um, and before we get into the werewolves and the poisons and the herbology and all that stuff, um, let's kind of briefly talk about why this thing is so toxic. So we know that the roots and the tubers are especially toxic. It's really prevalent, especially, you know, it can be absorbed through your skin uh, and has to be handled with extreme care because of those alkaloids that we were talking about before. Um, but but what is the actual effect of this thing? Right. So uh, it produces a topical tingling at first, kind of like an anesthetic, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and followed by, I, I guess, like it's an altered state. Uh, I wouldn't call it hallucinating, but it's kind of like your mind is affected. And we'll talk about different ways in which people have used it purposely to affect their own minds. But it sounds to me like it's sort of like a a state that cr- slows down the mind and, and sort of uh, puts most things out of your your thoughts so you can focus singularly. Yeah, and there's a there's a lot of mention in the in the literature about, uh, particularly when we get into its use as a poison, that mm. that it um, you you remain very clear headed until the very end, right? So it's kind of adding to the nefarious nature of it as a weapon. Having just gone under anesthetic yesterday, mm-hmm. I can I can imagine what the effects are like. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so uh, all you need is three to six milligrams of aconite to kill a healthy adult. Like, this stuff is so potent. Just like a few grams of the plant matter, touching your hands or obviously being ingested is super dangerous. Uh, and I found there's an old 1911 Encyclopedia Britannica entry that uh, mentioned that some people purposely put the, the, the petal or the roots to their lips uh, to produce, like, a numbness or a tingling. I guess it's like the whippets of the, the, <laughs> the turn of the century. Yeah, a very dangerous um, uh, practice indeed, though, because you, uh-huh. you need to make sure you just 
get enough of it to to inspire tingling and numbness and not you know poison you to death. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is the horse thing, which I found unfortunate. Uh, but apparently, horse dealers used to use this. They'd feed it to their horses before they brought their animals to market. And the reason why was it, it works the opposite on horses. It stimulates horses and makes them lively. So if you had an old, tired horse and you're mm. trying to get rid of it, you give it a little bit of wolfsbane, bring it to market, and it appears more lively, and you're more likely to sell it. And then you know the person who buys it gets it home and realizes that this is a very tired horse. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's get into the werewolf mythology a little bit. And uh, I think like one of the the key things here that we keep finding is that you see wolfsbane mentioned as both a preventative measure and uh, and and also the cause of lycanthropy. Yeah, that was the thing that was confusing to me. So before going into this, I'd always heard of it through the the myths, I guess, or the fiction mm-hmm. that I'd encountered as being the thing that you use. It's like other than a silver bullet, it's like the only thing that can stop a werewolf, right? Yeah. Uh, and it, I think there's like a Marvel Comics like X Men character whose name I, I I don't think I know. There's an there's an X Men character named Wolfsbane. The name doesn't really make sense because, as you suspect, her power is that she transforms into a werewolf. So what, like, I don't understand, uh, I guess, why there's the divergence in the mythos there of, like, it's the thing that'll kill a werewolf, but it's also the thing that'll turn you into a werewolf. Yeah, I don't know. It's just so tied to how a werewolf works that you can. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of it kind of represents the dual nature of the uh, of the substance itself, right? Right. That in correct proportions, it can be used as a medicine, and in um, strong enough doses, and or you know, which do- doesn't take very much, as we've already discussed, you have a, a, a dire weapon on your hands. You know what? That's a really good point, actually, and so. The, there's definitely historical connections to the the poison part because uh, Akhenaten, like I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Lycotonum, uh is this is the genus that's uh, essentially uh, the wolfsbane, the like mm-hmm. prominent wolfsbane. It was originally used as a, a way to kill panthers and wolves and other quote wild beasts. Uh, and it was considered deadly to them. One of the quotes that I read from an old textbook said, it kills them in the same day if you put the root or the leaf on the animal's genitals. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know how they're grabbing a wolf and, and rubbing the leaves of wolfsbane on its genitals. But the other uh, thing that I heard was that they used to lure wolves out, but they would take like chunks of raw meat mm-hmm. and they would mix in wolfsbane juice essentially into this stuff, throw it out. Everybody would go into their homes. The wolves would come out and eat the stuff and be dead like a day later. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting to see the, the connection here between wolfsbane and the, and using it as a deterrent against wolves, and uh, there, there, likewise, there are some arguments that the werewolf myth has its roots you know, not not only in sort of the dual nature of man as right. a, you know a beast, but also a you know a higher animal, but uh, but also in our our older struggles against wolves, where we were having to compete against wolves for resources. Yeah, it's not something that we run into on a daily basis now, or at least I guess maybe in in our culture we don't, but. But, uh, yeah, I was thinking about this, like, as I was doing the research, my dog, uh, often hangs out next to my office mm-hmm. desk and just kind of, you know, looks up at me and occasionally I pet him and stuff. And I, and I thought, well, we have a very different relationship with these animals today. Yeah. I mean, you look, uh, I mean, of course you can look at very recent history in the United States, uh, even with uh, the poisoning of wolves mm-hmm. uh, in very large numbers, uh, to the point wh- where we, we've had to, uh, to help bring the numbers back up in the wild. 
Uh, so yeah, we have a very troubled history with uh, with the canines. But so there's 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 a lot of folklore connected to mm-hmm. this, and 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 I think you're right to say that it it comes from the sort of dual nature of it being both a poison and a, a cure. Yeah, I was looking in uh, the Larousse uh, Dictionary of World Folklore, and it's pointed out there that uh, according to some folk beliefs, that if you applied a fatal dose, wolfbane would repel a werewolf, which mm-hmm. which seems kind of like a no brainer. <laughs> it would repel <laughs> anything, yeah. theoretically. Like this yeah. is a powerful poison, so I should hope it would work against the werewolf that's threatening my village. Right? right? Yeah. If it doesn't, then I'm I'm kind of boned, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, even in the horse case, I think it's still poisonous. Yeah. Uh, it just has different sort of side effects. Right. And, uh, and it, it, it in the, uh, the LaRue's Dictionary of World Folklore also mentioned that as an ointment, it could transform a sorcerer into a werewolf. Okay. Uh, though obviously a very careful dosage would be needed to avoid certain death. Um, this, uh, and, and it's also mentioned that it's possible that like a correct dosage level might have created or helped to create a, an hallucinogenic effect, um, which I'm not as sure about, uh, yeah. based on our reading, especially uh, you know the the descriptions of uh, aconite poisoning, keeping you pretty uh, stable in the mind up until the very end, with some possible effects on how you're perceiving the world, but not like a strong hallucinatory effect. So I'm not yeah. so sure about sorcerers taking aconite and having a werewolf paranormal experience unless they are combining, say, the physical numbness with some other agent. Yeah, I might be jumping a little bit ahead here, but I think I I have a theory for where this werewolf thing came from. And maybe not the sorcerer's standpoint from the people watching somebody proclaiming themselves to be a sorcerer or taking this stuff. Okay. So there's two things. First of all, when you're poisoned by this, uh, a lot of times you end up foaming at the mouth. Um, so there's clearly a connection there. Uh, in fact, there's a there's a connection to the the hellhound Cerberus that we'll talk about in, uh, in a moment. But there's you know also this idea apparently that uh, German berserkers used to take it right before they would go into battle uh, because they wanted to be mindless uh, right before they went into a fight. And again, they would foam at the mouth supposedly. Uh, so you had these German berserkers running at you, foaming at the mouth. And I can see where folklore would spin out from that, that like these men had turned themselves into beasts, you know, somehow. And, and they were sacrificing their their humanity in order to win the war. Huh. Remembering some of the um, the various symptoms of aconite poisoning, though, it's like I'm imagining a, a, a this berserker running into battle. He's foaming at the mouth. He's kind of numb all over. Yeah. Fierce diarrhea. Like, you know, so I guess <laughs> right. he's, he's vomiting. A, yeah. And then yeah. and then collapsing and and. Yeah, it's definitely like if you're going to take this stuff, it's like a kamikaze maneuver, right? Because there's no way you're coming back from that fight. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it. Now, um, in terms of causing werewolves, so, you know, we're not going to spend too much more time on this podcast talking about werewolves. But I, I did want to run through uh, many some of the many ways you can turn into a werewolf according to world folklore. Okay. And these come from Carol Rose's um, always excellent Giants, Monsters, and Dragons, an encyclopedia of folklore, legend, and myth. So uh, let's just let's just roll back and back and forth on this list here. Okay. Uh, first up, classic lunar-induced transformation. Full moon pops out. Right. Turns you into a wolf. And then there's, of course, the curse. Like somebody curses you uh, and you become a werewolf. 
Right. Then there's magical pelt-induced transformation, which I, uh, we don't see enough of. You know, How does you, that work? You you wear the pelt of the wolf. Yeah, you turn. have like a magical wolf pelt, and oh, you put okay. it on, and then you become a wolf. Yeah. All right. And then there's something called new moon conception-induced transformation. What's that? Just when the moon is is new. You were conceived during a new moon. Oh. And then obviously you're going to be born a werewolf. Oh, yeah. interesting. Okay. All right. Uh, here's a here's a vari- variation on that. Uh, Friday full moon slumber-induced transformation. <laughs> So um, <laughs> this one is basically there's a full moon on a Friday. You sleep during it. Boom, you're a werewolf. Wow. Well, I, I would be in werewolf trouble then because that happens a lot. Uh, and then there's, of course, if a wolf touched the water that you're consuming, that's something that would theoretically turn you into a werewolf. Yeah. Yeah, that one. That, that makes sense. Makes a little sense, yeah. <laughs> Just you're coming into sort of contact with the beast. Yeah. Uh, wolf brain consumption-induced transformation. So you right. eat the brain of a wolf and then you... You take on partially the the mind and spirit of a wolf. Okay. And then so this next one, it sounds like it's a wolf and human flesh combined. You eat it and Mm -hmm. then you become, uh, by by eating the two things together, you merge them so that you're sort of a bipedal wolf creature. Yeah. Okay. Then that's ancient Greek. Yeah, that's an ancient Greek one there. Okay. Then uh, bestiality induced transformation Mm -hmm. also makes sense. You're laying with the beast and therefore you're becoming partially beast. Okay. So Catherine the Great would then like be half horse. I mean, if you buy into those myths. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> well, I buy into the uh, wolf brain consumption one. Why wouldn't I? <laughs> and, oh, well, we've got, you know, we've also got overzealous Zeus worship. <laughs> oh, yeah. transformation. So if you're, you're too into Zeus, you know, there's a certain amount of worshiping Zeus that works. But if you're too into Zeus, you can turn into a werewolf. Yes, and that comes from the Greek myth of Lycanon. And, uh, and there's some other... Uh, Details uh, going on in that story, too. But essentially, the root there is he was just really overzealous. Yeah. Uh, there's seasonal feast-induced transformation. Um, Herodotus talks about this a little bit uh, in his writings, that there were uh, uh, Nehru tribal sorcerers who would just turn at the, these occasional you know, seasonal feasts. And, of course, there's witchcraft, which is similar to the curse thing. We've, we've seen that as an origin story, I think, in some of the sort of modern fiction, right? Yeah. That, that it's a curse. They're creating sort of a... I don't know, like a bestial bodyguard or something, or, yeah. or, or cursing an enemy. And you see that popping up in uh, witchcraft trial accounts as well. Like, oh, oh yeah. this this guy here, he clearly turned into a wolf, and he was killing people in the uh, in the area. So we're mm. going to have to take care of him. And then finally, have by having eaten certain uh, certain herbs, namely wolfsbane. So they didn't list the one that I think of as like the primary method, which is being bitten or clawed at by a werewolf. Yeah, she didn't mention that in the uh, the werewolf entry. Which makes me wonder to what extent that was just uh, 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 borrowed from the vampire mythology. Yeah, you know? for Hollywood purposes, it's yeah. an easy way to make a werewolf in in a movie, uh, and then you 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 end up tracing it back to a kind of chicken or egg type situation, yeah. right? Like how did how did the first werewolf become a werewolf? So it's got to be one of those things that we yeah. just mentioned. Because anytime you can introduce a contagion into your uh, your horror story or your mm-hmm. monster mythology, you know, it makes it. It makes it all the more uh, pervasive. Right, so. yeah. So we mentioned um, Cerebus earlier. Yeah. So, okay, so the Cerebus thing is really interesting. The idea here is from Greek myth, and I think it's that Hercules was fighting Cerebus or dragging it up? Uh, he he dragging had to drag him it up. Um, him, her, it, they? I, I think it's male yeah. uh, in the mythos, but I'm, I'm not 100% <laughs> sure about that. But uh, and that as he was dragging it up from from Hades, Cerberus was drooling as 
three-headed dogs do. And the drool fell on the ground, and where it fell is where wolfsbane first started to grow or or uh, a- aconite. And that sounds logical. You have a magical beast. It's coming up. It's drooling all over the place. Magical things are going to happen. Yeah, I mean, just as logical as, like, drinking the same water as a wolf would yeah. turn you into a werewolf. So, yeah, I follow it. It's a good story, though. I, I, this is one of those, like, uh, when Hercules did, like, the various labors, right? Uh, yeah, this was definitely one of the, the labors, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, thanks, Hercules. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for, yeah, you got popular, Hercules, and you were able to prove that you were a legend, and the rest of us got werewolves. Yeah, and poisonings. So, okay, Wolfsbane, we've talked about how poisonous this stuff is and how it's so reviled that it's connected to this long lore of werewolves in uh, most cultures, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's whether it's a cure or whether it's a, a poison to werewolves, it's connected to them somehow. So how is it? People have used it, though, as medicine for centuries as well. And we think that that may be where the sort of cure for werewolfism comes from. Yeah, certainly. Werewolfism, lycanthropy. Yeah. Let's use the D&D language here. <laughs> yeah, certainly in, in Western traditions. And uh, and there and some think, too, that uh, you have medieval witches that, uh, uh, you know, at least those individuals who are actually tied to traditional um, traditions of using native herbs in the treatment of, uh, of maladies, um, as opposed to individuals who are just caught up in the storm of witchcraft per- persecution, yeah. that those individuals might have utilized wolfsbane uh, for its curative properties, or even, you know, in some cases, its destructive properties. Yeah, even outside of the whole wolfsbane thing, again, remember, there's two sort of subclassifications here, and monkshood is one of them, and monkshood was also associated with black magic and dark medicines, and I, you know, obviously because of its poisonous traits. Meanwhile, over, uh, you know, across the continent, and the, the relatively where wolf-free uh, region of China, you see aconite used for about 2,000 years um, as an essential drug in traditional Chinese uh, medicine. Uh, and a number of these details uh, about this, uh, got this from uh, an, ar- an article published uh, in the 2009 edition of the Journal of Ethnopharmacology titled, uh, Aconitum in Traditional Chinese Medicine, a Valuable Drug or an Unpredictable Risk? Question uh, mark. Because... Wow. Um, because it because it all comes down to uh you know the 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 toxicity levels. I like that we're still debating this. Yeah, that we're still like, Meh, yeah, maybe. I mentioned this to a friend of mine this morning and he compared it to chemotherapy. Yeah. He was like, "Well, yeah, I mean, think about it. It's, you know, a thing that's like really you know, ultimately, like causing you pain and is really dangerous to your body. But yeah, I mean, when you look at a lot of a lot of the the, the naturally occurring agents that we use in traditional me- uh, medicines, or even in just col- for culinary use, spices, yeah. Yeah. Uh, at a, at a, at, a, at appropriate levels, these uh, can add flavor to your dish. At uh, at higher levels, they uh, can prove toxic uh, to your body, and uh, and that's just. That kind of ties into what they're originally there for. They're yeah. there as a plant's chemical defense system, and we've found ways to hijack a lot of these defense systems for our own benefit. Yeah, that's kind of the miraculous thing, right, of, mm-hmm. like, how human culture has over the years figured all these things out. Like, how many people had to, like, touch it to their lips and die or eat a certain quantity before they figured out exactly the right amount that they could use for medicinal purposes. And in this in this uh, Chinese usage, uh, it's it's very clear that they have to process it in, a, in an elaborate way for it to be safe. That's right. There's uh, there are these traditional Chinese processing methods uh, referred to as uh, Pao Zi, 
which play an essential role in detoxifying uh, the aconite. So typically, um, the the palsy uh, consists of uh, you know s- several different methods of heating the substance. So you're roasting it, you're honey frying it, you're wine frying it. Earth frying it, vinegar frying it, um, or various other means, and uh, and and we also have additional modern methods, which basically boil down to the same thing: using heat to detoxify it to a level to where you can can consume it. So we're like burning off the alkaloid content. Yeah, basically, basically, yeah, boiling it down, burning it off to the level where you can uh, take advantage of the benefits without having to worry as much about uh, poisoning yourself. And all told, the um, the, the Palsy process reduces the alkaloid content by up to 90%. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Because uh, I don't really recall like a process like that in the uh, literature on the European usages. It's more like tincture type stuff that they're making. Yeah, you're more playing with fire. Uh, yeah, it's like <laughs> one part per – it's in the notes, but like one part per 50 or something like yeah. that is what you do. So, okay, so they've got this elaborate process. They They reduce the amount of alkaloids that's in there. Uh, what are they using it for in particular? Like what is it a, a cure for? Well – um, not a cure, but I guess a remedy. Well, first of all, I should I should draw a finer line on on, on how it actually works. Okay, uh, so everyone can get a, an idea here. So it acts on the voltage sensitive sodium channels of the cell membranes of excitable tissues, including tissue of the heart, mm-hmm. nerves, and muscles. Um, so it stimulates, and then and then if the dosage is uh, is high enough, later paralyzes the nerves. And if it's applied to broken skin, the initial tingling becomes a uh, uh, kind of an anesthetic. Action. Yeah. So th- uh, that's what I r- recalled reading about the European variations. Mm-hmm. And but one of the things was that they never ingest it. It's always used as like an ointment or something like that because ingestion would obviously increase the amount of risk that this uh, alkaloid is going to be interacting with your cells. So uh, I'm assuming that this Chinese v- variation is also not eaten. Yeah, I believe so, especially based on on that uh, that significant detoxification. Uh, right. Again, the ideal detoxification, because the vast majority of aconite poisonings that still occur uh, in China, in India, um, uh, throughout Asia, are due to um, incorrect levels Overdosing. in medical medicine. Yeah. Yeah. So presumably, I mean, even though you're burning off ninety percent of it during that process, if you take enough of it, you're going to be poisoning yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Again. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So it's used. Homeopathically, right? Yeah, you see uh, homeopathic uses of aconite to treat stress. Um, stress, you see, you see it as a treatment for stress in in, in various uh, yeah, not just usages. Chinese culture, yeah, right? but also cold relief, pain relief, aches and pain. Yeah, I read that the Greeks used to use it specifically for eye pain, mm-hmm. and so I'm curious about that because do you? Do you make like eye drops and drop it in there or do you hmm. – uh, and, and it's particularly uh, – you know, as we were talking about that gardener earlier who was hurt. It's particularly bad if you get the alkaloid directly in your eye. Right. Um, so th- that was curious to me. But, you know, yeah, it, it, in all cultures, the European and Chinese uses, uh, it, they're using it to treat pains, agitation, indigestion, all kinds of conditions. Um I read facial paralysis is one. Uh, in particular, uh, it's used for um, neuralgia. Mm-hmm. So if you have like facial neuralgia, uh, you take an ointment of this and you rub it uh, on the area until it's numb so that you're no longer feeling pain. So it's a painkiller. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, in addition to, to facial paralysis, you used uh, to treat joint pain, gout, finger numbness, cold hands and feet, uh, mm. which granted would be due to other uh, conditions and yeah. not just, oh, my, I'm hope. feeling kind of cold. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to put the here. socks on. Why don't we uh, take <laughs> some poison? Inflammation, painful breathing, uh, fluid in the space surrounding the lungs, uh, certain heart problems, fever, skin diseases, hair loss even. Wow. Uh, which seems like a stretch, but... Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, I, I guess the thing is, it's basic numbing feature. Like it's something you can definitely you can definitely feel feel an aconite derived medication working in your system. Yeah. So even if you're just going to apply the placebo effect, you can say, "Ooh, I feel different," and maybe that uh, that difference I'm feeling is treating it. I would imagine that it works somewhat like a tranquilizer in certain doses, right? So uh, I know that in some of the instances, they use it to treat anxiety and nervous disorders, especially like uh, what we would today call post-traumatic stress disorder. But like if you had a traumatic event in your life mm-hmm. and you were uh, subsequently uh, having trouble dealing with it, they would give you this because of that, what we were talking about, that clear-headed kind of mind-numbing feeling of it uh, that the German berserkers would use for very different effects. Right. Yeah, so even if it's n- not able to directly treat the condition that's ailing you, it could at least have some uh, effect on your stress level surrounding that condition. So, yeah. that makes so sense. but I'm curious, like uh, the literature made it sound like there are places in the world right now that people are still using it. In oh, yeah, yeah. Ways. Um, yeah, through, throughout, uh, throughout China yeah. and, uh, and India. Um, and then uh, you see it used homeopathically uh, here in the West, too. I wonder if anybody out there who's listening has, has used it before. And if they have, I'd, I'd love to hear from you like, yeah. what the effects are like. Uh, is it just like, you know, a tranquilizer or kind of anesthetic or is it different? But, uh, it, you know, that's the... That's the curative side. That's the medicinal side. So yes. now let's get into the nasty because stuff. Because we would also love to hear from any listeners who have been shot with an aconite-laced arrow. Yeah, yeah. Anybody out there who's used it as a biological weapon. And that was one of the things that I kept thinking about when I was looking at this research was like, wow, like I'm surprised that there aren't more like poison assassination kind of attempts re- regarding this because from what I was reading, uh, it essentially just looks like the person asphyxiated. There aren't traces of this stuff uh, after it's been ingested. Yeah, because it seems it's it's relatively easy to cultivate and acquire. Mm-hmm. So you would think uh, there would be more cases of nefarious uh, agonite poisoning. As Maybe to there are. Maybe there sure. are, and we just don't know yeah. because uh, because it doesn't leave that much of a trace behind. But mm. uh, whew, it has been considered the most dangerous and poisonous plant in all of Europe, though, for a long time. And in European art, it's been depicted as a symbol of death uh, and used in rit- as ritual poison in certain societies. So a kind of Jim Jones Kool-Aid type thing, it sounds like. It's crazy how so much of this is lost beneath the uh, you know vague mentions in werewolf myths. Because again, uh-huh. it sounds like just this fanciful thing that, oh, it it, has, it it almost sounds like it would have no effect on anything but a werewolf. Right. But in, in effect, it's like saying, oh, you need to kill a werewolf. Why don't you try using dynamite? Yeah. <laughs> Which would work against most things, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, how does it kill you? Yeah. It, it, I'm assuming the way that it kills you is the same way that it makes you feel numb, right? It's yeah, basically, just, a, just an enhanced a, version, of enhanced that. version of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, based on uh, the research we were doing, it, it seems like it would roll out like this. First of all, 
you're poisoned in some way. Either you're mm-hmm. either say the enemy has um, has poisoned the well and you're drinking poison water, yeah. or you've been shot, stabbed, or or <laughs> bludgeoned with <laughs> with a wolf'sbane uh, laced weapon, right? Yep, yep. So after that shock, you're going to get uh, a sensation of burning, tingling, numbness in the mouth, which I guess might be kind of nice at first since you're not feeling that arrow poking out of your yeah, body. Yeah, exactly. Then there's a burning in your abdomen, and uh, it's said that death usually supervenes at this point before the numbing effect uh, on the intestine can be observed, but uh, but that's where it goes next, right? It, and yeah. and uh, pretty soon you're vomiting. Yeah, and so to clarify, like, the, the same thing, like, this neurotoxin is opening up sodium channels mm-hmm. inside your body, which cause the tingling, but it also spreads throughout your entire body, right? It's essentially... Uh, paralyzing your circulatory and respiratory system, and yeah. that's what leads to death. Yeah, yeah, you end up dying from asphyxia. And uh, and through all of this, though, you're supposedly conscious and clear-minded to the last. So you're staring. You're laying there on the battlefield, staring at this arrow yeah. uh, protruding from your shoulder, and you're thinking, "Oh, well, I'm not really feeling this arrow all that much. Um, I'm feeling kind of numb. Yeah. <laughs> must be the aconite. Must be the wolfsbane. Um, I guess I'm not long for this world." Huh? Yeah, and it's just uh, you know, it, it it basically sounds like all of the symptoms of like the worst possible cold hitting you suddenly right or like yeah. flu right like mm-hmm. you're you're dizzy you're nauseous you're vomiting uh your motor uh, skills start slowing down and becoming weak you your circulatory system slows down your respiration slows down and then boom that leads to you being unconscious and then followed up by you're dead because w- within an hour of consuming it it can kill somebody uh and like we said it's it's you know the death for the most part, is from the asphyxia, not from the arrow wound or the knife wound or, 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 or whatever, however it's delivered. Uh, and uh, it, the only post-mortem signs are from asphyxia. Um, and there aren't a lot of ways to treat this. Um, that 1911 <laughs> Encyclopedia Britannica I was looking at, uh-huh. uh, they suggested emptying the stomach by tube, which I don't know is, is necessarily how we'd handle it today. Um, but they did, they, there are a couple antidotes, uh, atropine, digitalin, and strophantathine. Uh, all of those, if they're injected subcutaneously, I think can counteract these effects. Uh, and then <laughs> this was the old, like, the old wives' tale, uh, remedy that I found that was listed was that you take olive oil and you mix it with laurel berries and the corpses of several dozen flies, but they have to be flies that have fed on the foliage of aconite. So you have to have this brood ahead of time, basically. Exactly. And you have to cultivate uh, uh, wolfsbane in order to harvest the flies and therefore remain in fairly close contact with the poisonous substance. So. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it's not uh, – this is probably not going to be a remedy that's on hand uh, within the hour you've got to live, basically, right. unless you've got like a – uh, you know, some kind of a witch doctor medicine woman uh, in town who just happens to have this concoction pre-made. Yeah, or if you happen to have some some on the battlefield with you. Uh, because uh, we see, uh, for instance, in Nepal, where you have a particularly poisonous variety of wolfsbane, um, uh, there there was a, a long history of warriors using it, uh, using the flower to tip their arrows mm-hmm. um, or poison enemy wells. 
And interestingly enough, the Odyssey mentions uh, Ulysses traveling to Epiros to collect arrow poison, and some uh, people believe that uh, some uh, historians believe that this was aconite. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I mean, it's just been used throughout history in a, in a lot of different ways, right? Obviously, the Greeks have a history of it. Uh, you, you mentioned Nepal, China, but then there's also uh, apparently the Nazis were looking at ways to use it to lace bullets. Yeah, this uh, this comes uh, out of the uh, the concentration camp uh, experiments. So uh, it's mentioned in the Nuremberg uh, trial proceedings. Um, uh, quote, on, uh, on 11th of September 1944, in the presence of SS uh, Strumpenfuhrer, Dr. Ding, Dr. Widman, and the undersigned, experiments with aconite nitrate bullets were carried out on five persons who had been sentenced to death. The caliber of the bullets used was 7.65 millimeters, and they were filled with poison in crystal form. Each subject of the experiment received one shot in the upper part of the left thigh while in a horizontal position. In the case of two persons, the bullets passed clean through the upper part of the thigh. Even later, no effect from the poison could be seen. These two subjects were therefore rejected. So essentially it was a failed experiment. Yeah. It, it didn't seem to have any effect. You hear about these Nazi like uh, science experiments that were conducted uh, on, on, on human prisoners, and it's mm-hmm. it's mind-blowing. But this, this one in particular... I, <laughs> I just can't imagine, I mean, knowing even, like, from the 1911 Britannica encyclopedia that I was reading from uh-huh. earlier, it pretty clearly understood the effects of it and how it worked. So filling a bullet with crystallized wolfsbane seems like it wouldn't work to me, because how is it gonna come in contact with your, your, your skin or your circulation, even if it's going through your body, still protected by a metal casing. Yeah, I mean, you can say this for a lot of the experiments that took case uh, that took place in, under these circumstances. Though it seems very misguided oh, because yeah. it's you're taking an old notion of. Uh, of, of poisoned weaponry and trying to apply it to modern ballistics in a way that doesn't really match it up. Like, I know there have been other experiments into uh, poisoning bullets in various ways, but I can't think of a single one offhand where where there was any real level of success with poison munitions. Yeah, and it just sounds to me, too, like it was even something like they probably knew it wasn't going to work, but it was just sort of a sick way to torture these people, you know, mm-hmm. uh, slowly. But it's... It's there. There it is on the record. Yeah, it was absolutely used it's in the history books. Yeah, but again, they were clearly inspired by the long use of aconite as a weapon, uh, particularly uh, in uh, in Chinese uh, botany, where there were five different species uh, that were uh, particularly used for arrow poison. Right, it is a species of the uh, of of the plant itself. They're laced on the arrows, and apparently in ancient Greece they did the same thing. They would the shepherds would actually take arrows, lace them with this stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and bait as well. Like I was talking about earlier, and again use them to kill wolves. So uh, we see like there's a lot of iterations of using this to kill wolves that trace back to that werewolf stuff we were talking about earlier. Uh, but it, okay. I, I guess I can see like you coat it with an arrow. It goes in your body. That's going to work, right? Because the, the poison is coming into contact with, with your internal organs. Right. But uh, the bullet transition is where I get lost. Yeah. Nazi logic. Not, 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 not real tight. But you know, outside of the world of uh, human warfare and human medicine and accidental human poisonings, you do have some 
organisms that regularly and in one case exclusively feed on wolfsbane uh, and and have a, a an extremely high tolerance for aconite. Yeah, this gives you like a I think this is a great example of just how different our biological systems work mm-hmm. from from insects that like yeah I talked about the horse earlier and that the side effects made it a little lively as compared to like numbing mm-hmm. the dozen humans or or wolves I guess but uh, uh the tiger moths and uh certain kinds of bees right uh, yeah eating. one one bee in particular and I'll, I'll go ahead and mention this one first because this is a this is an example of you have the you have you have this plant and it's it's highly toxic as we've discussed and it ends up being visited uh by a number of uh, of of different bees different pollinators and it needs to be pollinated mm. so it it can't just be completely isolationist right it can't just poison everything that comes near it yeah. uh keep the cows away sure but the bees need to get in and um and while the uh, the pollen uh has a fairly high levels of toxicity, the nectar itself has low levels of alkaloids. So it's uh, it's difficult, and it's difficult to acquire um, that nectar without specialized mouth parts. So you end up with a situation where um, it, where the, the plant itself encourages specialist pollinators. Okay, uh, and in this case, we see the uh, the so-called old world bumblebee or. Uh, Bumbus consobrinus, uh, and you see this uh, this uh, this particular bee uh, throughout Eurasia, and it has simply evolved into that niche where this is a a very dangerous plant to to deal with, but it can deal with it delicately, and uh, and as such is a uh, they play a vital role in each other's life cycles. Yeah, so it sounds like the the old world bumblebee and and these plants co-evolved, right? Yeah. So that they adapted uh, survival mechanisms together. I was looking at a study. Does uh, a certain type of aconitum chemically pr- protect floral rewards to the advantage of specialist bumblebees? And this mm. is a 2013 um, study from Ecological uh, Entomology, and uh, and they were looking at like at the the levels of aconite in the bodies of both the specialist bees and the journalist bees. Yeah, um, yeah, and it, it it really did seem to drive home that the. The, the specialist is where it's at for right. this particular plant. Yeah, that's, so, that's fascinating. Yeah. So it's not just like it would be easy for me to say, oh, well, insects are fine with it, but but mammals are not or whatever. But it's a very particular kind of, of bee that can right. do this. But then there's also the moths, right? Right. And, and this is relatively recent. I think this study popped up on our radar this year, didn't it? Yeah, this was a 2015 Russian study that came out and uh, – pointed out first that there are 18 species of butterflies and moths that are known aconite feeders as caterpillars, of course. Right, right. Um, and this includes the rare uh, Minitree's tiger moth, and it feeds on the red aconite. So if I remember correctly from reading the, the press release that we saw when this story originally came out, this this moth is like, when we say rare, it's extremely rare, right? Like it hasn't been seen in like 20 or 30 years, I think. Yeah. And then like this recent sighting in 2014 or 2015, not only did they see the moth, but they also saw uh, its young, like 
yeah, actually eating the, the flower. So that's why they know this now is that like they, they, they know that they're kind of, uh, living in tandem. Yeah. And they theorize that the caterpillars are, are possibly consuming the alkaloids for, for protection of overwintering larvae, uh, against fungal and, and bacterial diseases. Huh. And in this, it's, it's interesting to, to, to look again at that bumblebee study where they pointed out that you see aconite levels not only in, in the bees that are actually visiting, uh, the, the, the aconite, uh, laced, uh, plants, yeah. but also in their young. So there's like this residual level of aconite just in the species itself based on their primary food source. Okay. So here's my, like, uh, totally unscientific, dumb question to ask okay. then of, uh, I don't know if you'll know the answer to this, but uh, maybe somebody out in the audience knows. If an old world bumblebee consumes enough aconite and then subsequently stings a human being, Will that aconite be passed on to the human being, and then would that be enough of a dosage to poison you? Based on what I read here, I would yeah. say no, because okay. uh, and I'm they didn't even get into stinging or anything, so yeah, uh, I don't know to what degree. For for all I know, this might be a, a non-stinging uh, species. Yeah, that's true. But uh, but they said that the level, the toxicity levels within the creature itself was not significant. Okay. So okay. I think you'd so it'd be just fine. be like a little bit of numbness, maybe even if it was passed through the stinger, but it probably wouldn't. Yeah, be. I get the sense that you you would not get any any sensation at all right. from it, aside from of course the stinging you know, sensation, the, the, the pain. Yeah. 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 All right. So there you have it, uh, Wolfsbane. From werewolves to Nazis, from <laughs> traditional Chinese medicine to poisoned arrows and old world bumblebees. That's, that's the thing about this particular subject that I think is so interesting is it's just, you know, you say, again, like I said at the top, you say Wolfsbane and you go, uh, right, yeah, that's in some like, uh, goofy werewolf movie, mm-hmm. but, uh, it's got this like fascinating history that just goes back hundreds and hundreds of years and, it's not common knowledge, or maybe at least it's just not to us. I didn't, I didn't learn this at any time in my education. Yeah, but it, based on the uh, the accounts of poisoning still occurring, uh, both in uh, yeah. North in North America and Europe and in Asia, uh, people could stand to be a little more educated yeah. about Wolfsbane. Yeah, maybe so. we need to add uh, Wolfsbane 101 yeah. to uh, the, the the Hogwarts uh, uh, syllabus. Indeed. All right, so there you have it. Uh, again, if you want to check out more topics from Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes uh, from the very ancient episodes up until the, the, the newest. If you want to see, just be right there on the cutting edge of what's coming out, that's the place to go. Yeah, and like I said at the top of the episode, you know, we are going to uh, start hopefully periscoping uh, at the end of October. So uh, you can find out more information about when we'll be doing those and where you can find those episodes. Uh, obviously on Twitter, but also on our Facebook and Tumblr pages, which are Blow the Mind. Uh, that's that's the handle that we use on all of those. Uh, and we've got videos as well, the Monster Science stuff that will be on all those channels, and uh, they're already on our YouTube channel. Yeah, so check it out. And, uh, hey, in the meantime, where can people send those accounts of accidental and intentional uh, aconite poison. Oh, yeah, yeah. Definitely write us in if you've got some stories on this. So it's blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 